This was originally supposed to be uh, a dream episode. And I say that right off the bat because I think that helps to explain several elements of the construction of the episode itself. In fact, one might say that it basically feels like two episodes that were slammed together because it functionally is. They had this episode design and they were ready to go with it. And then they decided, eh, we didn't like the dream thing, so we pretty much at the last moment came up with a completely separate way of dealing with that problem, which was to bring in the Traveler and have him be a thing, and, you know, all the stuff that ends up being a part of the actual episode proper. This is also... <sighs> among my favorite episodes in TNG, like, not top, it's not up there with, like, Best of Both Worlds or anything like that, but it is definitely an episode that would be on the VHS list, for example. I'm just going to start calling it that, the VHS list. And I... I think I'll explain why as we go through this, even though this episode is a lot more flawed than I remembered uh, upon rewatching it. <clears throat> the teaser is a solid 4 minutes and 43 seconds long. I only point that out because I had some people mention, you know, why are you pointing out a short teaser being a full minute? In the TNG era, some people tend to forget this, the average teaser length was anywhere from 4 to 5 minutes. It was fairly common. And I just point this out because this is the, the approach that they were using. I'm not saying it's a good thing, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it's just the way they were doing that. I do have to say, Jordy has to be pretty damn on edge to be snapping at Wesley the way he is. Now, obviously, spoiler alert, and I'm just going to be spoiling the main mystery of the episode here. Yeah, in, in the teaser, Beverly ends up getting stuck into the warp bubble. And then from then until 29 minutes and 7 seconds, we all have the, the viewpoint of Crusher within the bubble. Now, all of that was supposed to be the episode, basically. And, in fact, that was actually basically supposed to be the end of the episode. All, everything up till that point. They, that, and then she was going to wake up and, oh, it was all a dream. Now, I have to admit, that would have sucked. There's a reason the it's all a dream type of ending is so reviled amongst fandom across all fiction, never mind just Star Trek. Especially since it ultimately wouldn't have meant anything, because it was all just a dream. Rather, this construction allows it to not only have more real stakes, but also to be an interesting portrayal of the character. Now, I mentioned one of the things I do like about Season 4 is that it was a deliberate intent on behalf of the creators to try and take more of the characters that had just not had as much screen time or effort put into them, try to bring them more to the forefront. I'll never forget something that was told to Tasha Yar, excuse me, to Denise Crosby all the way back in season one. Because Crosby was asking for more scripts, more screen time, more, more presentation as a character. And she was told this is a show about Picard, Riker, and Data. Everyone else is there just to be kind of the ancillary, or ancillary, ancillary. God, I can never remember how that's pronounced. I actually looked it up recently, too. Anyways, they're supposed to be the, the not even the secondary characters. They're just there in the background. And Denise herself said, somewhat jokingly, but partially seriously, that occasionally she would be asked to come in and just stand there. And Lord knows this has happened several times for Worf, for Troy, for Crusher, even for Geordi, even And he's actually had episodes to himself. So I like the fact that they're branching out and allowing them to do more. If anything, I just wish they did more of this across the rest of the seasons. Because even across all seven seasons, I can only point to a small handful of Troy episodes. Or Crusher episodes, right? Anyways... I also point that out because, in both cases, they're good actresses. Uh, uh, Enemy Skin? I can't actually remember the name of the episode, but the, the big one with, with Troy, which I believe is this season, is a great episode, and Marina Sirtis does a wonderful job in it. And this episode, remember me, we see Gates McFadden doing a wonderful job of it. It's not like these people can't act. Anyways, so, note how... 
one of the things that's interesting about this is at several points in time, you can kind of tell how Crusher is basically talking to herself. Worf even flat out says, if he was missing or injured, why is his gear, you know, why is his, 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 his suitcase, why are his things also missing? And that's basically her talking to herself and being like, well, this doesn't make sense. And it's funny because the nature of the human mind is to try and make things make sense. In fact, it could be argued that that's actually a weakness of the human mind since under the right st stimuli, it can lead us to basically self-destructing mentally and emotionally. However, it also means that in this place which she is basically creating and perpetuating, she herself is the method of escalation. Because we see a significant amount of escalation throughout most of the episode, and I'll be pointing out major points as we go. So at first it's just someone's missing. But then, as Worf points out, well, this isn't a usual situation. So that gets her thinking, which makes things get worse. It's also interesting that Data, by which I mean, of course, her own mind, establishes very firmly early on that he has been retroactively removed from reality. There's no record of him. O'Brien doesn't remember him. None of them remember his existence. There's no record of him in the local computers. There's no record of him at the local starbase. This man has never existed. Now... This is Star Trek. Weird things happen. And if you pay attention, basically no one really points that this out as if there's something wrong with Crusher. Quite the contrary. Everyone acts completely in character. All right, we all mysteriously think someone doesn't exist, but she does. Clearly something has happened. Let's deal with this. That's, that's accurate. That's appropriate, and I do like that. So then they go to O'Brien... And they start thinking, well, maybe it's the warp bubble. Maybe this is the explanation or something like that. Maybe that's where this is going. And you'll notice at that point, that's when it starts to escalate the next step, where other people start to disappear. And you'll notice that the first group of people to disappear are her own medical staff, those who are, professionally speaking, closest to her. So... Then things start to disappear, and then things starts to go away. And, and again, it continues to escalate, and it snowballs in many ways, or as I like to say, seesaws, because the more it tilts, the more it tilts, right? Hence the seesaw effect. And it gets to the point where she's like, why would we need a staff on a crew of 230? What's with all the room? And this is actually one of the most interesting uh, elements of the episode, because at every point in time... Every logical argument she tries to use is defeated by the fact that they just think of this as completely normal. Of course we have a massive apartment complex in space with only 230 people on it. Why wouldn't we? We could use all that space to transport colonists or to have, facilitate cargo. And she's just like... What? And the funny thing is, and we the audience are supposed to get this too, this is still not normal. Now we the audience, of course, know that this is not normal because we've been watching Star Trek for the last three years. <laughs> or rather TNG, I should be more clear. So we know all these people exist, especially when it gets to the point where people we know start to disappear, like Worf is one of the first big names to actually vanish. Now, there's a nice bit where, she, where she's basically ordered to go talk to Troy. Now, I do like that, because it, it's, it's the moment at which they acknowledge, okay, we are not finding anything. It might be you. I'm not saying it is you, but it might be you. So why don't you get yourself checked? What I find most interesting is that when she goes to Troy, Troy doesn't really offer any kind of assurances or counseling. Now, I point that out because if you really pay attention, none of the people say or do anything that Crusher herself is not already familiar with or capable of knowing. 
So of course Troy doesn't give her any perspective. In the same way that if you have a dream about someone, that someone will not be able to do things you don't know about, you can't think about, that you're not aware of, because it's your dream. Now, of course, this is still part of the dream construction, but even with the confines of the alternate reality bubble thing, this still makes sense, because it is still her mind generating the bubble. So, of course, Troy doesn't help her in any way. It's the same reason why data doesn't really state a whole bunch of statistics other than random numbers every now and again. It's the same reason why Worf doesn't really offer anything other than vague security concerns. You can see little tidbits of this throughout the episode. It's very nicely done and very well written overall. This episode was actually written by Lee Sheldon, which is a name some of you might actually be familiar with. He has only done one episode of Star Trek ever, this one. But he worked as a producer for some of season four of TNG, and he moved on to do some other shows. He actually became a video game writer uh, for several things and a voice actor for quite a few projects. And I mean, like, in the 50s, he's done a ton of games. So some of you have probably heard of this man. But I do think the narrative construction is actually very tight because there's so many little details in addition to the fairly obvious escalation. In many ways, this episode feels kind of like the episode The Survivors over in season three. It's basically a Twilight Zone plot. But it wouldn't really work as well if it was a Twilight Zone pod, if, if continuity was not a factor, in other words. Part of the reason the, these episodes work so well is we know these characters, we know these people, we know how they act and react, and we're able to work with them and care about, about them. It's the one thing the Twilight Zone was really absent. Make sense? So this works, and this mystery continues to escalate, and then... Well, before I move on to the next step, I want to mention there's one scene where she turns around and desperately, and I just want to give more praise to Gates McFadden. She really nails it this whole episode. She goes and just begs, I, I know you have nothing other than my word to convince you of this, but please send us back to the Starbase. Please, there's some danger to the ship. And Picard only hesitates maybe two seconds before saying, okay, send us back. Your word is all I need. And I like that. I wonder how many other people could make that demand of Picard that he would acquiesce to. I know he would have guided because he has in yesterday's Enterprise. And that was a Picard which was far less lenient and diplomatic in general, right? Because of the whole military doom thing. But instead, here, yeah, of course he's going to listen to Crusher about that. She's one of his closest and best friends. I have a feeling there's a couple other people. Riker could probably make that request of him. But probably not that many. It also helps to showcase the level of trust and consideration that these two people have, and is something that I kind of do wish they had pushed a little farther. I'm not one for shipping, but as I've said before, Gates McFadden and Patrick Stewart have amazing chemistry on camera, and a lot of their characters rotate around each other very naturally and fluidly. They have good dynamic together. And so having there be... It doesn't need to be romantic. But having there be more scenes of closeness between these two characters is something I would have really appreciated. They actually start doing this from this point on. She actually starts being a regular feature of his life, and episodes that center on Picard usually also involve Crusher in some significant fashion. So that is good, but I do still wish they would do more with that. But I digress. So it, that's a good scene. And then, you know, the rift shows up where she is, I might add, and she's like, okay... Well, this sucks. And they name-drop a couple things. So she goes to Wesley. Now, this is actually interesting. Wesley actually name-drops Kaczynski as well as the Traveler. Good continuity, first of all. But second of all, notice that everything Wesley says in that scene is everything she already heard and already knows. Once again, keeping the trend of the dream. But what I love most about that scene isn't just the continuity or the coherence of it, although that helps. It's the fact that this is a woman who is facing the fact that she might have just lost her son retroactively and... 
basically loses herself. She does that when she's talking to Troy, actually. And she just goes running for engineering, shouting for her son. Oh, thank God he's there. Oh, thank God he's there. And she's so happy to see him. And he gives the explanation. And we kind of learn about the traveler side of thing and blah, blah, blah. And credit to the directing. There's this bit where she... Uh, hang on, I'm sorry, one second. Yeah, that's what I thought. This is a Cliff Bowl episode. I was going to say, because it feels like his style. I've kind of gotten a, more of a feel for Cliff Bowl's style as I've been going through the TNG stuff. There's this bit where she, she and he are going this way, and then the camera shifts to the corridor where they're coming from, and she is the only one who keeps coming. And she just loses it. This is effectively the moment where the audience perspective is most important. I'll, I'll talk about that in just a second. Because this is when we have the next true layer of escalation. We've already had to the point where main characters have started vanishing. But this is the point at which she goes to the bridge and she finds out the only other person on the entire ship is Picard. And he's just like, you're kidding, right? And he's still acting like this might be with her. And she, Gates McFadden, once again, wonderful, wonderful acting. She portrays someone just as desperate and terrified as she should be, while still adamantly refusing to just lay down and scream. Like, like a lesser woman would have probably buckled under these circumstances. But Crusher is no lesser woman. She never has been. She's a commander for a frickin' reason. This is actually addressed in a later episode where she mentions how she wanted that rank. She pushed for it because she has that kind of drive. So she doesn't lay down and start whimpering and babbling incoherently, even though if she did, it would be completely understandable. This is a nightmarish situation. So she says, all right, let's go back. And then she asks, and this is so brilliant, she asks for the computer to put a continuous reading of his, uh, of his life signs. And again, this is wonderfully directed because he sits down in the captain's chair and she's in the first officer's chair. And the camera's just on her. And so she's looking kind of like this in the direction of where Picard is, right? And she's talking to him. And you can hear in the background the litany from the computer. And she turns away for a couple of seconds, and the litany stops. And she turns back, and he's gone. Now, these are the kind of moments that are very difficult to pull off properly, because the audience knows nothing's wrong. The audience knows this is just some kind of a thing. I mean, they're not going to somehow erase all these characters retroactively from history, right? So there's no threat of Picard being gone. It depends on the significance of the moment, the acting, the, the, the script, the music, and the direction to really pull you into the moment to feel that impact. And they do it. In this moment, we feel Beverly Crusher is now alone. And there's this wonderful bit. I actually forgot about this, these lines until rewatching this, where she's standing there. And you can tell she is on the verge of just complete mental breakdown. Wonderful facial acting by Gates McFadden. I hate to praise it again. And you could see her there, and she just, you, as she's on the verge of tears, she says, I won't forget. I won't forget any of you. Powerful moments like that help to salvage bottle shows like this. So, um,. Then there, another rift shows up, second rift. Notice it is once again where she is. And this is at the 29 minute and 7 second mark. This is the first time we leave the rift and see the real world perspective. 
This is, in my opinion, the biggest failure of the episode. Not the real-world perspective, but when they do it. Because what happens is they reveal this at, at the 30-minute mark, basically, like I just said. And we learn... The Traveler shows up. It's good continuity, by the way, having the Traveler come back. This is not even the last time he'll show up on the show. Although his third outing is a little more questionable. Anyways, we learn that the two attempts to retrieve her have failed. Which is good exposition, actually. It gets across quick and dirty that the rifts have been them, and that's what's been going on. No need to bash us over the head with it. And the time traveler shows up, and then several minutes pass, during which the time traveler basically says, here's what's going on. That was a mistake, in my opinion. Now, I know an episode has to run a certain length, but at the very least, that should have been appended towards the end of the episode, rather than at this point. Because what happens over the next several minutes is it starts to cut back and forth between them trying to get to her and her deducing what's going on. Now you notice the disconnect here, because the problem is we, the audience, now know the full reality of what's going on. But she spends up until like the 42-minute mark still deducing what's going on. Now that makes sense in character, but from an out-of-character perspective, from the audience's perspective, this is now taking us out of the moment, because we're just seeing her repeat stuff that we already know. If you had shoved this all back, so I, I, I don't like to critique without, you know, just f fixing things. So let's talk about what happens with her. She's all alone, and as a quick aside, she actually shines when she's alone. There's this great, again, credit, credit to Cliff, Cliff Ball, there's these great scenes that could have been dry, but instead are made more alive by how the camera's moving with her, as she's basically talking out loud to herself and to Major Barrett, that is to say, the computer, as she examines the ship bit by bit, right? It, it's nice, and it helps to keep the scene moving. It also is, frankly, well-written, as she slowly, logically deduces her way through the circumstance she's in. One of my favorite parts is, do I have the ability to run this ship on my own? No. Then where's the rest of the crew? And then the computer just steps up, trips up on that. Of course it does, because it is illogical, Right? And so she starts, and from this element, she starts to deduce that she is not truly crazy, that this isn't on her, that this is an external dilemma that needs to be solved. So that's good. I like that. I also like, um, you know, we need to go to this place. We need to go find the traveler. You know, surely he will know something about this kind of a thing. And then there's this bit where the computer says it'll take 123 days to get there at warp 9.5, by the way. And there's this great moment where she just kind of goes, and you can just see, once again, credit to the actress, you can see what she's thinking. She's thinking, I have to spend four months on my own in this ship. Okay, let's go! And then she, this is, this is the best part, and this is actually the final escalation, because she sits, she sits down and she's like, all right, engage, nothing happens. Computer, what's happening? And then the computer's like, oh yeah, so uh, that place doesn't exist anymore. This is the final step of escalation. She finds out that it's not just people disappearing, it's places, whole locations. And eventually, as she'll find out, the bubble itself of the universe is shrinking. What is the nature of the universe? The universe is a bubble that's, you know, such and such size. Holy crap! As a quick aside, I'm not going to point out the obvious um, inaccuracies of the script. You know, 14 meters a second, and it'll take four minutes to close? No, that's incredibly inaccurate. But let's just ignore those inaccuracies and move on for a second. Having then deduced this, having deduced that the place is vanishing, and realizing that she was thinking about 
you know, I, I, what is the question you can't answer? And she was thinking about Quace, Jack, Wesley. There was a flash. Of course, that moment, if you're going to do it, that's when I would have switched over to the Traveler and to, and to Wesley and to Jordy and to Picard and start having the scenes that already played happen. Because now everything's been deduced in character. Now, that would still have the repetition problem. But as is, it, it really pulls a lot of the weight out of her scenes, which are well-acted and well-written and well-directed, just repetitious. I still think the whole episode would need another polish pass. But the fact that they threw in the Traveler basically at the last minute kind of is part of the problem here. Anyways, so then they could have cut over. And Why is the final rift show up in engineering? I've actually heard several people say why that is. Uh, maybe it's because the Traveler was involved this time. Maybe it's because she thinks it should be engineering. She deduces that, after all. But the previous two were at her, so... Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Make of it what you will. And then she gets out, and there's just this wonderful relief, the way she embraces Patrick Stewart. Again, good dynamic, good chemistry. It's just, oh, thank God. Because... You could tell that there was at least some part of her that was terrified of never seeing them again, or worse, them never seeing her again. But there, you're real, you're live, everything's okay. Thank goodness. And this episode also pushes forward the idea that Wesley is superhuman. Something that's been very, very briefly touched on before now, but ultimately has been an abandoned side plot. I'm... A lot of people didn't like this episode purely on the fact that Wesley basically starts accessing Q-Light powers. I don't disagree with you, because I think that's not really the right direction for Wesley to go. But, think of it in whatever direction you like, this is something they did with that. I'm willing to forgive that, though, for the other, like, you know, 75 or so percent of the episode. It's actually all I got. I do like this episode. It was even more enjoyable in many ways and less enjoyable in other ways on review. Funny how that works out. Next week, we have another one of those hallmark moments in Star Trek, so I hope you will join me next time. <laughs>